Masechet Ketubot, Daf Pe Zayin. The Mishnah at the end of the Daf yesterday was talking about a husband who offers his wife an oath waiver. I will not make you uh, have an oath, and he puts that in the Ketuvah. And we saw a few different scenarios of the exact language. If he says, I will not make you make an oath, but then he can make her inheritor's vow, uh, unless he uh, uses lang- more specific language. And even if he says, I won't make your you vow, but his inheritors can make a vow, unless he use other specific language that no one's going to make any one vow. All right, the opening question is going to be exactly what is the nature of this vow. Uh, but the end of the Mishnah, which is also going to come into play today, I was talking about after he dies, the husband dies, if she goes straight to her father, her, her own family's house, or even if she goes home, but she's not appointed a steward, then the inheritors of the father uh, of the of the of the husband cannot force her to vow but if the wife was appointed as the administrator over the, over the estate then the inheritors can make her uh, make a vow and uh, we'll talk about more about that as well okay so we and uh, we begin the question when it says here in the opening that the husband can issue issues an oath waiver what kind of oath are we talking about we saw earlier that a husband can't just for any reason go make his uh, wife take a vow there was the opinion of it to be Eli Azid who thought that yes a husband can make his wife take a vow even about dough but Tanakama did not say that he said he can only make her take a vow if she's going to be the uh, storekeeper or the stewardess over the estate so when it says here in the Mishnah that the husband gives this oath waiver what kind of oath would she have to take if not for this oath waiver we have two opinions Amar Rav Yehuda Amar Rav it is in fact about the case where she became a steward over his property during his lifetime and then he has the right to make her vow but if he writes in the ketubah i uh, get, i released you from vows that will come up uh, should they come up during the marriage so it's talking about this type of vow says no it's talking about a vow that we're going to about to see in the very next mishnah on this stuff which says that when the she comes to collect her ketubah if she admits that she did receive partial payment uh, then she impairs the power of the ketubah that's pogemet ketubata and to collect the rest of it she she has to make a vow we're talking about that type of vow if the husband at the beginning of the marriage releases her from that vow then she will she will not have to make the vow even if she admits to receiving partial payment all right that's the two opinions and now we're going to reject one of them said the following in front of Rav I understand the second opinion of Rav Nachman, uh, who says that it's talking about a case where she impairs her ketubah. At the beginning of the marriage, she, uh, the idea is raised in her mind, says, I may need some advance, an advanced payment. I may need some cash. And then I'll take the money for my ketubah in advance. I'll, I'll receive 
partial payment for my ketuvah, and then uh, and she will tell him, write this for me, write for me that I don't have to vow. She, since at the beginning of the marriage, it's a likely, there's a strong likelihood that she may want a cash advance, and so, and she won't, she doesn't want to have to vow at the end when she comes to collect the rest of her the rest of her ketubah. So it makes sense that a woman would foresee this happening and ask the husband to release her of vows. I got that. Rav Nachman is makes sense. But according to the first opinion, that of Rav Yudah in the name of Rav, that we're talking about a case where she is made into an administrator of over the over his properties during his lifetime, uh, and in that case, yes, normally he can make her take vows. Do you think she knew that he would ask her to be the administrator? And that she would foresee that happening and therefore say, hey, can you write for me that you release me from vows? Should I, should I be an administrator? This is an unlikely scenario. Most of the time, husbands do not ask their wives to be administrators over the property. So it's not something that she would foresee. So it doesn't really make sense that she would ask him to write this in the Ketuvah. So the first case is likely, the second one is un, is not likely, and therefore the, the answer of Rav Yudah Amarav doesn't make sense. That's what Mordechai asks Rav Asher. Rav Asher answers, Rav Asher says, oh, you applied Rav Yudah, Rav Yudah statement to the Resha of the Mishnah, we learned it regarding the Sefa. What we see here is that a lot of times, statements of Amoraim that are a commentary on the Mishnah, sometimes it's not clear where, at what, uh, what line of the Mishnah it actually applies to. And so it could move around and it makes a big difference in the meaning. So Rav Asher says, Rav, Rav, uh, Rav Yudah was not talking about the opening of the Mishnah. In the opening of the Mishnah that a husband can offer, can issue a waiver, that in fact was talking about an impaired ketubah, and everyone agrees with that, with Rav Nachman, even Rav Yudah would agree with Rav Nachman. What Rav Yudah said, he was talking about the end of the Mishnah, Halcha Mikeved, Ba'ala Lebet Abiha, Oshech Hazra Lebet Chamiya, Velo Naset Apotropia, if a wife goes directly from the cemetery to her own father's house, or even if she returns to her father, her in-law's house, but she's not made, and never made an administrator, then the heirs of the husband cannot make her take a vow. She was not, she did not have access to the property, so she has nothing to defend. But if she was made an administrator, then there is suspicion that maybe she mishandled some of the property. So Yorshin Mashpi'inota Alatidlavo, then the uh, inheritors can make her vow about what ha- will happen in the future. So this is not actually about the future, but it means from some point and on, either from death on or from the burial on. We're gonna that's what we're gonna talk about. But they cannot make her make a vow what happened earlier, what happened before that. So when exactly is the future and when is exactly the past uh, that he cannot make a vow? What, what do you mean? What, what past? Right, why would he have to, why, how could the inheritors make her take a vow about something that happened way in the past? So this is the statement. Rav Yudah Amarav 
when he said the statement, he wasn't talking about the beginning of the Mishnah, but rather about this line, that the past means if during his lifetime, while he was alive, he made her the administrator, then even though the husband can make her make a vow that she did, she's doing the administration well, her, his heirs cannot go and make her take a vow about the past when she was an administrator. Maybe you think that they could because the father could, so maybe they could also. No, and about the past, that's talking about when she was an administrator during his lifetime. But, however, from the time of death, uh, and from uh, even between the time of death and burial, for sure after the time of burial, but even during that in-between time, the heirs can, in fact, make her take a vow. So that's the main, that's the key. This, the, the reason why Rav Yudah says the past is talking about when he was alive and she was an administrator is so that they could say future starts earlier than um, another opinion that we're going to see uh, says. Uh, during that period between the burial, between the death and the burial, the, she has to go and co- she has to pay for expenses regarding the burial. And so, you know, th- did she do so honestly? Uh, the heirs have a right to make her vow that she did. Uh, whereas this opinion of Rav uh, disagrees with Rav Matana. They say that even between death and burial, they cannot make her take a vow. Uh, because uh, they say, after all, in that regarding the head tax that has to be paid for the members of the family or the sustenance that has to be given to the wife and the children and the expenses for the burial, we sell property without an announcement. Normally, if, if you want to sell property that, that is part of an estate that belongs to heirs, you have to make a public, the court has to make a public announcement, wait 30 days, make sure that it's being sold for the highest to the highest bidder. Uh, but in in this short time period between death and burial, there's no time for all that. And therefore the uh, court administrating the uh, estate has a right to sell immediately without announcement. So same, so too, the wife, if she's in charge of paying for the burial, paying for those expenses during that in-between time, we don't make her take a vow because we know that this is a crunch time and we, uh, just like we don't make an announcement, we're not, we're not so particular, so we can't be so particular and make her take a vow, so there's no vow. So this, this is a machloket between Rav Yehuda and Rav Matana about that in-between time whether she makes a vow between the de- about, about her administration of the finances between the bur- between the death and the burial but both of these sages would agree with Rav Nachman um, and regarding the first clause that when the husband gives the oath waiver that's talking about an oath for an impaired ketubah. Okay, good. And now we're going to see some other formulations. The Mishnah mentioned a few formulations where he says, I will not give you a vow. I will not issue a vow to you or your inheritors. I, my, I and my inheritors won't issue, make you take a vow and so on. So what about some other ambiguous statements? If a man says, we're going to get married, and there will not be no vow and no oath. In that, in that case, it means, He cannot administer an oath to her, but, but his inheritors can. 
because he just says, I'm not going to give you an oath, but it doesn't say anything about his heirs. And if he says, you are clear from vows, you are clear from oaths, then ben hu ben yorshin en mashpin ota. That means he and his heirs cannot make her take a vow. Because the word clear means you are clear from oaths no matter what. Uh, no matter who's asking you. Rav Yosef ve'amar That was one version of Rabbi Chiyah in the name of Rabbah. But Rav Yosef said a different version of what Rabbi Chiyah said. The first half is the same. If he says, I'm not going to take, you, you will have no vow or no oath, then the husband cannot make her take an oath. But the inheritors, they didn't agree to that, so they can. If he says, you are clear from oath, clear from vows, then both he and his inheritors can make her take a vow. Why? Because this language of clear means clear your name of any suspicion by taking an oath. So uh, this is the exact opposite, right? The first version said, Naki means that you are clear from taking an oath. So you, you don't have to take an oath. Here it means you are clear with an oath. You clear your name by taking an oath. So then even the husband himself can make her take a vow. Another formulation. Shalach Rabbi Zakai Lemor Ukva. Ben de lo shivua. Ben de naki shivua. Ben de lo neder. Ben de naki neder. Bin chasai hu eno yachol lahashbi'ah. So Rabbi Zakai told Mor Ukva that doesn't matter if you say no uh, oath or clear from oath, no vow, clear from vow. Those are all the same. The key is, what is the object that you're putting it on? If you say, no oath regarding my property, then the husband cannot make her take a vow while he owns it, because he said, my property. But the heirs can, because at that point, it's not the husband's property anymore. It's the heir's property. So once it transfers ownership, the, um, the waiver does not apply. However, if the husband said, no oath regarding this land, uh, then it doesn't matter who owns it. Um, it applies to the land itself, no matter what. And therefore, both he and his heirs cannot make her take an oath. Good. Good. Rav Nachman, the uh, second generation Amora, said name of Shemuel, the first generation Amora, who said in the name of Abba Shaul, there is a Tana named Abba Shaul, but this is probably not the same person um, because he, had, this person has another um, uh, lineage uh, that's uh, somewhat unusual to make a lineage after a person's mother. But sometimes when a person, either their father was out of the picture or their mother is very prominent, so this is Abba Shaul. Um, Abba uh, would be uh, um, like saying Sir, a, um, a honorific. And Ima Miriam, Ima is also probably like saying Madam, uh, also an honorific. 
Okay, so we um, th this person Abba Shaul seemed to be, be before Shem contemporary or before Shemuel. So he's right on the on the balance of being a Tana, a late Tana, or an early Amora. Okay, in any case, he says the name of Shemuel. Shemuel says in his name Ben de la Shemua, Ben de Naki Shemua, Ben de la Neder, Ben de Naki Neder, Ben Menechasai, Ben Menechsaya Ilen. He says all the formulations you said up, up until now don't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you say no vow or clear from vow. It doesn't matter if you say my property or this property. Ben Hu, Ben Yoshev, and Mashpirin Ota. All those, all those formulations mean that he's not going to make an oath and his heirs cannot take an oath. That's, that's what they have in mind. Aval ma'ayse share amruha chamim habali para menichse yetomim loi para ela bishwa. However, Abba Shaul says, What can I do? I, I really I would say that none of no one can make make or take an oath. That's what it means. No oath. Clear from oath. This it doesn't matter if you say this land or that land. Uh it all all has the same intention that right. The idea is that he he says you, you don't have to take an oath ever. But even though that is what the meaning is. There's an overriding principle that the sages said that if someone wants to, anyone wants to collect from orphans, if there's an outstanding debt or a wife wants to pay the kit to pay a kituvah, cannot be paid unless they take an oath. That was a decree that the rabbi said to protect the money of the orphans. So since that's in that's a preceding law that overrides the oath, the oath waiver. So even though the husband said you don't have to make an oath, but it doesn't apply to the orphans ever because of that overriding principle. Okay, this whole statement that we just said is repeated exactly word for word, except that now it's a Braita. Abba Shaul ben Imam Miriam Amar. In other words, not Shemuel saying it in the name of Abba Shaul, but rather an independent Braita. Uh, which would mean now we're considering Abba Sha'ol for sure to be a Tana. He said, Ben de lo shiwa, ben de naki shiwa, ben de lo neder, ben naki neder, ben menechasai, ben menechasaya ilen, ben hu, ben yorsha, ben nashbi inota. So once again, all of these formulations mean that his intention is, not he, not his heirs, uh, can give a, an oath. Aval, but there's an overriding principle that anyone who wants to collect money from orphans has to give and has to make an oath and so the woman the wife will have to make an oath Aval um, uh, oath period that's the end of the baraita and regarding this baraita Rav Nachman said the name of Shemuel halacha is like Abba Shaul ben Ima Miriam. So this is uh, the same as the, the first, just the first, it's uh, Shemuel quoting it directly, here we're quoting it as an independent Braita, and then Shemuel saying, yes, Halacha is like that Braita. All right, so now we already introduced this concept, but now here is the source. Hapogemet ketubata, a woman who impairs her ketubah, she lessens the its strength. How? Uh, we're going to see. When she wants to collect it, she has, she has to make a vow. Normally, she doesn't have to make a vow because, look, she has a document. But when she impairs it, then she has to. Or, or it gets impaired, not by her, but by uh, one witness. One witness comes and says, this ketubah was paid. Well, in that case, the husband says, look, I have one witness. Now, if he has two witnesses, case closed. One witness is not quite strong enough 
to close the case, but it is strong enough to require her to make a ketubah. She cannot get paid unless she, she vows. And now the third case, if a wife wants to uh, collect money from uh, the orphans, or actually anyone who wants to collect money from orphans, or if she's going to collect from a land that was had a lien on it, and uh, that lien that land was sold to someone else, so she has to go repossess it from the buyers. Or if the husband is not in town, which that would be a case where the husband gave a get to his wife and then left. Right, he went to another country immediately afterwards before he paid the ketubah, and she comes and she wants to uh, have the ketubah paid, but he's not around. In all these three cases, she has to make a vow, right? Because the husband isn't there, the litigant isn't there directly, and she's dealing with some third party, so she has to make a ketubah. She has to make a shivuah. Good. Now the rest of the mishnah is going to explain each of these cases. Um, it's actually quite a, an elaborate explanation, uh, unusual for the mishnah that's usually much more terse. So okay, The first case of an impaired ketubah. What does that mean? Uh, the ketubah was worth one thousand zuz, and he says, "I already paid you all thousand." She says, "No, you only paid me a hundred. So then she can he she cannot collect unless she makes an oath. This is an seems to be an application of the principle of mode bemixat. Any time someone says. You know, someone claims, hey, you owe me money, but they admit that part, part of it was paid, so they're admitting partial, but they think that you, the, uh, uh, they admit partial payment, they have to make a vow to pay the rest if the other party says, I already paid you the whole thing. Like Gemara will see, ask if that is, this is in fact a deoraita shivua uh, under that category. Okay, that's the first case. What's the case of one witness that says it was paid? If the ketubah was 1,000 and the husband said, I already paid you the entire 1,000. She says, I didn't get any money, zero. But then one witness comes and says, you were paid the entire amount. So if she makes a, a, an oath, then she can collect the rest. So the oath is strong enough to counter the one witness. How would, how would the lien property case work? A man, the husband, sold his land to, a, to, a, to someone, and now she comes to collect her ketubah, and he doesn't have money on hand, so she can go to the purchasers and, said, and say, sorry, I had a prior lien before your purchase, and she can collect it from them. If she does that, she has to make a vow before she can take it from that third party. What will be the case of heirs? If he died, and now it goes, the uh, property goes to, uh, to, the, to his heirs, let's say his sons, 
And she wants to collect from the heirs. She has to make a vow. This is the uh, the law the law that Abba Shaul was referring to that you always have to make a vow to collect from heirs. Will be the case of where he's not around. He's still alive, so it doesn't go to his heirs. He owns it. It's uh, uh, but he gave her a get, and then he skipped town, and so now she is coming to make a claim. On on his property, he's coming to the court, and so whoever is gonna, whoever is in charge of administering his property while he's gone, she would have to make an oath to them. She makes an oath, then she can be, she can, she has to make an oath in order to collect her money when the guy is not around. And last statement of the Mishnah: Rabbi Shimon Omer, he says something we'll have to explain later. Anytime she comes to claim her ketubah, then the heirs can make her take a vow. But if she does not make a claim of her ketubah, then they cannot make her take, take a vow. Well, the Gemara will explain. All right, we begin. So Rami Barchama uh, thought uh, suggested that this oath um, of someone of a woman who admits to receiving partial payment that is a deoraita oath because it's the same as any case of bode b'miksat right if someone's claiming uh, uh, claiming two hundred and admitting that they already got a hundred. Uh, so that was modeh b'miksat. That's a Torah law that they would have to pay, they would have to make a vow. And so this would be an application of it. That's what Rami Barachama thought to say. However, Amar Rava says, no, it's impossible that this is a Doraita vow for two reasons. One rule is that all the oaths that are required in the Torah are oaths that one would make a vow and not have to pay. In other words, it's an oath given by the defendant. Uh, the plaintiff comes and says, you owe me money, and the defendant can make a vow and get out of paying. Whereas here, it's the wife. She's the plaintiff. She's trying to extract money, and here it says that she can take a vow and extract money. That can't be. Therefore, that proves that it's not a Torah oath. It's a Dirabanan oath. Right, she's vowing and receiving, um, and not vowing and not paying. So that's rule number one. There's no vow in any case that re- that is regarding land or a lien on the land. So if the same case of modem mixat, right? Um, I say uh, you uh, that um, I paid you already ten ten fields, and you say. Um, no, you owe me. You owed me ten fields, but you already you only paid one, but you owe me nine more. So that's also a case of admitting to partial payment. But if it has to do with a field, then there's no biblical oath regarding fields or any loan that has a lien on a field. Also, there's no Torah oaths. And for those two reasons, Rava says. It has to be and why did the rabbis require her to take an oath? 
Tepara Dayik. Someone, because usually someone who is paying is very precise. They know, remember exactly what they paid. So that's the husband here. He surely remembers. If he paid, it makes sense that he remembers exactly how much he paid because it's, it's uh, painful whenever you have to take out money and pay someone. You have to think, okay, do I have enough money? Can I pay the whole thing? So you're going to remember exactly. Dimi Pada Ladayik. But the one who gets paid is not always so precise about the exact amount, um, right? It's just, you, know, you don't have to go through that pain of having to take out money and give it. You're just receiving it, and you may have forgotten if it was a part of it or the entire amount. And so maybe she, the wife, who's getting paid, when she receives something, she didn't remember precisely if it was the full payment, and she remembers partial payment. So we're going to make her take a vow. So that she'll be precise she'll go back check her bank records and uh, remember exactly how much she got paid and so that's the reason for the vow okay good the question was asked to the sages if a woman impairs her kitubah but she has witnesses so the man says I paid all thousand dollars she said that you paid only a hundred and there are, in the presence of witnesses, here are the witnesses that say that you paid that hundred. They saw it. So in that case, does she have to make a vow to collect the rest? Uh, so on her side, it would seem not because if indeed he paid the entire amount, he would have paid with witnesses, just like he for sure paid the first hundred with witnesses. Everyone agrees to that. Shows that he likes having witnesses, and the fact that he doesn't have witnesses for the other 900 supports her claim that she wasn't paid, and therefore she should not have to take a vow. Or maybe it just happened to be that there were a couple of people around. So when he was paying her the first hundred, he says, oh, hey, these guys are here. Come look at this. And so fine, there was witnesses. But he didn't actually go out and make sure that there were witnesses. And therefore, uh, we cannot assume that she's right. And she does have to make a vow for the rest of the 900 and the witnesses being there for the first hundred does not add anything to her claim. That's the question. We're going to try to answer it, but it won't be successful. Tashema. This is a Mishnah in Masechet Shavuot. Here's the principle we saw earlier, that any Torah oaths uh, are required by the defendant, that they will have to, they, they vow, and that way they will not have to pay the plaintiff. But these, the following, are all rabbinic oaths in which the person who vows also is the one that collects. Hasachir, a hired worker who has making a claim against the employer, saying, hey, you didn't pay me, and so he makes an oath. Hanigzal, someone who is stolen from. That would be a case where he can prove that this thief stole something, but the details are not proven, so he makes an oath about exactly how much he has to pay. Nechbal, someone who was injured, again, where there must be some proof that, there, that he was injured by this particular person, but he makes a vow regarding the details of how much he is owed. Ukshenegdo hashud ala shebu'ah. Or, in the case where one person has to make an oath, but the per that person who normally would have to make an oath and not pay, is suspect. He's uh, not an honest person. And therefore, the rabbis in that case can flip the um, obligation of the oath from the person who is paying 
to the person who is trying to collect and saying, listen, that guy, normally he would pay and not, ha he would make a vow and not have to pay. But since we don't trust him anyway, if you want your money, you make the vow and then we will make him pay. We saw a case just like this above. Chenvani al pinkaso, if there's a, a storekeeper who's owed money and he has it written in his notebook so he can take a vow so he can collect money. Uh, the exact details of these cases are, there's a lots of commentary on, but we'll just explain them simply here. And the last one is our very case. Someone who impairs his contract, could be talking about anyone in any loan contract, uh, but we can apply it here also to a ketuvah, someone who, let's say a woman, who impairs her ketuvah without witnesses. Uh, she so she says, I, I, I admit that you paid me 100, but not the rest of the, uh, the, rest of the 900. Uh, so if there's no witnesses, then she would have to make a vow and she collects. So we can infer from this Mishnah, she has to make a vow when there's no witnesses. But if there are witnesses to the 100, then she does not have to make have to make a vow because she can claim. Look, so you always pay with with witnesses, and the rest of the nine hundred there was no witnesses, so no vow is needed. So it seems we can answer the question based on this mishnah, but then we reject it. Lami bayakama, not necessarily. Maybe the mishnah is saying a uh, a case where that is the bigger chidush, and all the more so the, our our case. Lami be'edim. Uh, I, I don't I don't even need to say a case where there are witnesses that for sure you would need um, you would need to make a vow. But if there's no witnesses, I might have thought that look that he says I paid everything. She says she admits of her own free will. There's no witnesses around. She comes and says, actually you paid me a hundred, but not the other nine hundred. She easily easily could have said, no, you owe me the whole thousand, and she would have collected without a vow. So therefore, her admission that she got paid one hundred is like she is returning a lost object to him that he, he couldn't he wouldn't even be able to prove. Therefore, we might have thought that she should be able to collect without. A, without an oath when there are no witnesses. That's why this Mishnah says, even if there's no witnesses, um, the, she still has to make a vow. All the more so where there are witnesses that will prove that prove that she received the the one hundred, and that uh, she could not have claimed, she could not have hidden that fact. Uh, so that um, uh, that impairs the kituvah because it shows that it was some there was some payment going on here, and so we might have thought that then in that case, uh, in that case, she would have to make a vow. So for sure, not if if the case where there is no witnesses. She has to make a vow, even though she would be believed totally, then all the more so she would have to make a vow when there are witnesses to that partial payment. And so there's not necessarily a proof from this Mishnah. Okay, next question. A woman comes, a man says, I paid you the whole thing. She says, you paid me a hundred in very tiny installments. And she has a record. Um, on this date, you gave me half a penny. On this other date, you gave me another half a penny. And she has everything so meticulous, uh, so meticulously recorded, even down to something that is a very tiny amount. 
Um, so what do we say in that case? Does she still have to make a vow? Do we say, look, she's so meticulous. Remember, the whole purpose of the vow was because sometimes when someone receives money, they're not so careful to remember or to record what they received. But this woman obviously is very, very meticulous. Um, or do we say maybe she is deceiving us? She just made up some records of every little bit, and but she just made them up in order to show as if she's so meticulous. But actually, uh, she's tricking us, and we leave that question standing. Next question. What if instead of woman say, the man says, uh, you, uh, you, uh, the, the kituba was a thousand, I paid you all thousand. And she, instead of coming and saying that you paid me a hundred, she said, actually, you only owed me nine hundred. Um, so she reduces the total amount of the ketubah, right? Even though in the ketubah document, you might read it and say it's a thousand. No, no, we agreed on 900. She's admitting to that. So what about that? Is it the same? Same thing. Either she says, you paid me a hundred, you owe me another 900. Or she says, you initially only owed me 900. It's the same thing and it impairs the ketubah. Or do you say, when she says, I, you paid me a hundred, then she's admitting to partial payment. Usually when there is some payment, there's a good likelihood that there is a more payment. And that's why she has to make a vow. But in this case, she is not admitting to any payment at all. She's just saying the original amount was less than you, less than you thought. That's the question. Let's try to answer it. Tashema. Pochetet tipara shelo Here, Braita says that if she reduces the amount, she can get paid the rest without a vow. Kesad, how would, how would this case be? Haita kitubata elifzuz, if the amount was a thousand originally, uh, written in the kitubah. Vamad la hit kabalt kitubatech, and he says, I paid you the entire amount. Vihi omedet, lo hit kabalti, vena ela manes. He says, I did not get paid anything. But by the way, you only owed me a hundred altogether. So she can get paid without a vow. So in fact, uh, she does not have to make a vow in this case. Now we ask about this case. How is she collecting anything? She's collecting on the basis of this contract, of this kitubah. This, this kitubah is a shard of earthenware. It's worthless because she just admitted that even though it says a thousand, it's not true. So she just uh, um, she just nullified the entire ketuvah and it's not worth, it's only worth the um, paper it's written on. So how could she use it to collect? Rava explains this, where she says, we had trust between us. Now, he originally wrote a, a ketubah for $1,000. Very nice of him. And then she said, no, nah, it's okay. I don't need it. Let's just make it 100 And they had an oral agreement and says, we trust each other. And he didn't, he didn't bother to demand that I rip up the ketubah because we trusted each other. And therefore, well, I guess they, that, that trust was lost during the course of the marriage because at the end, he doesn't want to pay her anything. Uh, but she is still honest and she says, no, we agreed orally to 100, but he didn't pay anything. So in that case, he, uh, she does not have to make a vow and she can collect the, uh, the entire amount uh, without a vow. Baruch Adonai Amen ve'amen.